Welcome to the Creators on Comics podcast. Spooky Halloween edition. This podcast is usually a conversation between two comic creators that I've paired up to interview each other, but for the month of October, we're going to do a series of spotlight interviews with creators of horror comics that I've enjoyed. This episode features Derek Lofman, a comic writer and artist from London, Ontario, and the creator of the fantasy horror comic Crimson Fall, Lambs of God. In the interview, Derek and I discuss his journey into making comics, his character design process, horror comic recommendations, and a lot more. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Jordan Patrick Finn. I am a comics writer and comics editor, and I am the host of the Creators on Comics podcast. Uh, I've invited on a very special guest to join me here on the podcast today. Uh, This is Derek Lofman. Derek has been a professional comic artist and illustrator for over 20 years. He has a string of self-published works, including Bot9 and The Witch of Wickerson, and he's done freelance work for clients that include Marvel, DC, IDW, Boom, Hasbro, Disney, DreamWorks, uh, and many others. Uh, I invited Derek onto the podcast to discuss his fantasy horror comic, Crimson Fall, Lambs of God. Derek, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Jordan. So, uh, yeah, I'm Derek Lofman, and uh, I mean, you've kind of covered in the bio, I guess. Um, just to kind of let people know, I sort of um, I do comics as a hobby more than part of my uh, bulk of my income. Um, I mainly do, you mentioned like working for Marvel and Hasbro, Mattel, those companies. So I mostly do toy design and I do artwork for board games, um, trading cards, things like that. And then I sort of moonlight as a comic artist in my spare time. That is very surprising, seeing the quality of of the books that you put out. I ran into you at uh, the Toronto Fan Expo, which is where where I became aware of your work and the quality of your books and your art. And after reading a few, the writing in them as well, uh, you strike me as as a full-time professional comics creator. I, I didn't know that it was a more of a hobby or part-time gig for you because your quality is, uh, is fantastic. Oh, thank you. Well, I think I think it's probably just a testament to the fact that I, I have a bit of a following and I've been able to like garner enough uh, sort of funding from Kickstarter and things like that for my book. So I can put out a pretty produced book and I, I do a lot of research into like different printers. I get them printed here in Canada, um, you know, so I, I don't um, cut corners when it comes to, you know, printing my books and I want to have something that looks as good as anything else being put out there, maybe better in some regards, because I'm not I'm not cutting corners. Like I want to have a good quality product. Well, so mission accomplished. Absolutely. <laughs> um, can I ask where, where do you do your printing? Uh, since I, you know, I'm also nearby the Toronto area and I print locally <laughs> in uh, in Canada as well. So uh, let's share some trade secrets there. Okay. So um, I have done the majority of my books through Marquise printing. They're based in uh, Quebec. And um, I've also done, uh, I printed Crimson Fall with uh, Friesens, which is based out of Winnipeg. They're kind of like the two main like Canadian printers um yeah, the if big you're ones. gonna do yeah, yeah if you're gonna do bulk uh printing of say a thousand copies or more that's kind of where you want to go I've, I've gotten some outrageous quotes from other places that claim to do bulk printing and like insane pricing from some of those places so you really it, it narrows down to like those two are sort of the main ones I believe there's a one other one the name doesn't ring a bell uh right now but they were like, I think their minimum was 2,500 copies. Mm-hmm. So Friesen's yeah, and Marquise. Are both I was going to mention those, those exact numbers. I think Friesen's. Yeah. At a thousand or more, like go with, go with Friesen's or, or Marquis. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, smaller print, you know, there's more options, but uh, it's also a lot more expensive. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and that's part of, you know, where um, I've been fortunate because I, I know I can move a certain amount of books and therefore I can, you know, print in a bulk, get the price down a little bit. Um, still turn a decent profit off of each book. And, you know, that combined with Kickstarter, sort of a nice little sub income from yeah. these books. Can I ask what, how long did it take for you to get to that point where you felt comfortable at, uh, at print runs of a thousand or higher? You're, in your bio, you say you've been working on comics for 20 years or so. How much of that well, was? Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So interesting, like my, my comics uh, history, maybe I can give you a little backstory of like, my education and then kind of how I got into sure, that was uh but, that was going to be we'll... sort of the first question <laughs> I got but uh 
I got distracted with print runs and, and technical nonsense. <laughs> yeah, no, no, instead, we'll, but I was we'll going to ask, there. how and why did you uh, begin making comics? What what was your uh, journey like into this industry? Okay, so typical uh, comics uh, making kids since like grade three. I was making little comics with a friend of mine and, you know, stupid little comics you do when you're a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, always was a fan of making comics. Um I was sort of brought up in the image boom um, was sort of my big foray, foray in the comics. Um, I was, I think, 14, 15 when that sort of launched. And that was sort of a nice, exciting way to like go into comics. Like, you know, buying a Spider-Man 200 or something didn't really appeal to me. But when like a Spawn number one came out, I was like, oh, I can start at the beginning. That was exciting. You know, teenager, you know, it's it's uh, the, the comics are flashy and that drew me in. So big uh, image comics collector for like the my formative like teenage years and then dreamed about being a comic artist, hearing stories about young 20 year olds getting picked up by image comics and earning two hundred thousand dollars a year and moving to L L.A. And it was like this dream back then of like, oh, maybe you could break in and make a whole lot of money. And, you know, there's a ton of money in comics in that moment, which later obviously uh, <laughs> wasn't there anymore. But, uh, you know, I think that fuel that fueled it for me, though, as a, as a teenager, I was like, there's a career here where I think like probably in my early teens, I didn't really think there was a successful artist career path for me. But as I sort of my love of comics and seeing the success of image. And I think there was this started to open like in my mind, I'm like, Oh, there's a path here into comics. So anyway, I graduate from high school. Um, I end up getting into uh, Sheridan college for classical animation. And um, even though I didn't want to be an animator, um, I was aware of like all the principles of animation, mm -hmm. storyboarding, layout, character design, all those things. I'm like, I can apply all these skills to making comics. So I was the one kid pretty much in uh, in like, you know, year of like 100 students. It was like, I don't want anything to do with animation. I'm going to be doing comics. <laughs> You're just in um, the animation program. Yeah. Not here for animation. Just uh, going to siphon off the knowledge that I can steal and use somewhere else. Right. And, and funny enough, another industry that was busting was the 2D animation world. So like as I my first year, um, I went into animation. The animation industry started to crumble. It was when... Toy Story had come out, so everything became like 3D driven. A lot of mm -hmm. studios were closing down. Um, so even like when we when we started our first year of animation, everybody was sort of like kicked in the stomach because they thought they had this like you know big opening yeah. of all these different places we're going to be hiring right out of school, and you know so they were kind of crushed. But I was still okay because I was going to go into comics. I was not worried. And uh, yeah, how how did that play with all your <laughs> classmates around you? <laughs> all panic right? For yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Like, oh, I was like, never worried about it anyway. Yeah, well, by third year, I started to get people asking me, like, "What? How do you do comics? Mm -hmm. Like, what's this comics thing about?" Oh, like, they all was, wanted to make the jump with. Well, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just because it was bleak. It was a bleak yeah. outlook. I would say, like, okay, so I graduated, and I had a, a gig lined up um, with a publisher uh, studio. Um, it was called Roaring Studios at the time, and. I won't get into it, but it, I kind of, it kind of screwed me over <laughs> and uh, a property we were working on uh, that was going to be published by image. This is my big, like, you know, kind of break, you know, it's mm -hmm. going to be a creator owned book going through image. Yeah. That's um, the dream, you know, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. I was like 22 at the time, 23, yeah. somewhere in there. You and spent um, 10 years basically working to this yeah, moment. Pining. Right. So exactly, exactly. Um, However, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how it all went down behind the scenes. Um, I believe they were paying too much for the art and the coloring. We had Liquid, who was coloring for Joe Mad at the time on Battle Chasers, was uh, doing the coloring for the book. Um, they were paying me a good amount of money, a good page rate at the time. So I think that was the decision to kind of underhandedly like scoop the property from me and like get another artist to draw it and it was a really weird situation uh really awkward i was a yeah. you know 23 year old student with debt living in canada and uh, these folks lived in the u.s and i'm like i don't i'm not gonna get into litigations yeah. and like you know i don't have the means to do that it was just kind of like it was crushing but it was completely I crushing i i i 
when that happened and that kind of got yanked from me, I, I completed the first issue. I was all right. Like I thought this was going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they had paid me, you know, a handful of, uh, for a handful of pages and stuff like that. But, uh, so, so that, that page rate that you say they were paying you quite handsomely, um, was that a rate that you had set and demanded from them or was it something? Well, yeah, that we they negotiated. Had... They were, yeah. they were pretty, like, I think they were pretty hopeful, you know, that the, you know, maybe the comics were going to make that much money. I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Like they were, they were throwing out some pretty big numbers. I think I was getting at the time it was like 250 us per page for pencils, which was pretty good for somebody yeah. who didn't really have much of a, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I didn't have much of a track record, some indie stuff, nothing big. Especially that, that currency conversion is nothing to scoff at. Yeah. <laughs> American no, was, listeners was, of the show, like, yeah. It was a good, I mean, I think even further. nowadays, like nowadays you'd probably be, you know, for pencils, 250 is, is a good rate. Yeah. So, um, and I think they were paying, you know, liquid probably more than that per page, yeah, like, because yeah. they were such a big name. Um, and I don't know exactly the you know, like I said, the, the inner workings behind the scenes of why they decided to cut me out. Um, just wondering, like, and... would it not have just been in everyone's best interest for them to try to renegotiate with you before just uh, secretly replacing you? <laughs> well, yeah, that was the thing. And I, I, I don't know, like, what exactly, you know, what, I, what happened because I never really got a conversation from them. It was really like a weird kind of breakup, <laughs> if, if you will. Um, Imagine, like, you know, trying, trying to, to understand. Kind of got ghosted. Heck trying to understand the headspace that you were in at that time, like w- trying to get to the dream of being with image. Like, uh, mm. I don't know if this is true for you and you can speak to this, but I imagine mm. if they came to you and said, Hey, like we're not going to make the money we thought we were going to make. Can we re talk about your, 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 your rate? Can we maybe figure something out? I, I would like to imagine you might've been amenable to that given, given what you were hoping for in yeah, terms, of, yeah, in terms I... of publishing credit, but you know, that's, that's yeah, I don't really know. Call, yeah, I don't not know mine. No, hundred percent. No, and that's the thing. I don't even think we really got to have much of a conversation. Like I said, it was kind of like a weird kind of breakup back then. Um, you know, in that they kind of ghosted me. Yeah. And then I was just so frustrated by the whole situation that I dipped out of comics. I was just like, I don't want to be in this business mm-hmm. anymore. Um, totally understand. And even then, back back then too, there wasn't like a lot of entry points into comics. Like it was there was very few doors that would open, you know, you got lucky if you went to like a portfolio review at a comic con and maybe got picked up, you know, those type of things. But being in Canada, I didn't really have a lot of, you know, means to travel to the U S all the time. Um, I had only been to a handful of shows, you know, it wasn't like something I could just pick up and do and go and kind of hunt for things. And plus being kind of crushed from that dream um, and sort of also just becoming tainted on the business side of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was for that to be your real first experience. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And, um, you know, I had done, like I said, a few indie things and and gotten paid and that was nice like beforehand, but it wasn't really like quality stuff that I was proud of. And this was going to be the first thing that was really going to be proud of and sort of sink my teeth into. So, yeah, so that kind of led to me just, um, leaving comics and, um, so I'm about probably 25 at this point and, uh, Took up some graphic design job somewhere for a couple of years. Um, and then I uh, got into video games. I got a job in video games. That was kind of a nice little happy break from comics. Um, and uh, I worked in games for about 10 years after that. So that brought me to about 35 years old. And then um, it was uh, Sean Galloway, who was a friend of mine, um, who I had met back when I was promoting that original image book. I met him at San Diego Comic-Con and he was an up-and-comer kind of going around with his portfolio. Mm-hmm. So um, we kind of became friends after that and kind of kept in touch online and message boards and things like that back in the day, DeviantArt. Yeah, um, long before you know. uh, the current social media <laughs> sort of way exactly. of operating. Yeah. So, so Sean's the one who brought me back into comics um, for a, um, he needed help. He had gotten a big uh, project um, called uh, uh, World of Warcraft Pearls of Pandaria. Um, was what ended up being uh, the book and I was um, a big Warcraft fan at the time and was playing all the time and he asked me if I'd like to help do layouts for the book because it was just this big daunting like 130 some odd page book and I was going to be one of three people to like help do some layouts for the book and then I turned out some layouts pretty quick because I was just excited to kind of get back in the group of comics it was and um and working on a property that you're super excited about as well yeah yeah exactly I, I was motivated and he's like wow this 
yeah, I turned it out so fast. He's like, do you want to do the whole thing? Do you want to lay out the whole book? So I ended up laying out the entire book. So that was sort of like my, my first like jump back into comics, like, uh, you know, laying out an entire, you know, 120 page graphic novel. What year would that have been around? Let's see. I would have been 35 and 45 until 10 years ago, somewhere in there. And, and then where did, where did comics take you from there? Okay, so uh, I worked with Sean a little bit more um, here and there. It was sort of, I was doing a bit of a balancing act between still working in games a bit. I had my own game studio uh, with a friend of mine. It was just a small indie thing. Um, And we were sort of struggling to keep our head above water. Comics was sort of like a nice little side gig to help supplement income. Um, I ended up parlaying that into like a few other just design job things through him. He had a studio uh, called Table Taffy. And so I got to work closely with him. We I helped him do like Batman Black and White, um, just a short story through that. We did an Adventures of Superman together. It was a nice little like partnership. And it was a nice like kind of have somebody kind of holding my hand through getting back into comics. Yeah. Like that was kind of a nice like ease back in <laughs> to yeah, the world of comics. You make it sound like a very, um, very good working relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Sean's Sean's still a good friend and you know, uh one of my favorite people in in the art world and uh, in general. So just such a good dude. And uh, so doing work with Sean, I guess at some point you decided I'd rather work for myself. Screw the Sean guy. I want to make my own. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, during this time is sort of like my, um, as I was sort of breaking away from the games industry and I sort of had some success freelancing, um, doing some freelance design for other video games. And then I had been just on a kind of a whim. I started drawing uh, these chibi fan art characters, which I kind of started, I I became known for eventually this chibi sort of fan art. It was sort of like, it was different than what Scotty was young was doing. Mm. And John Samariva, we were sort of like the three chibi guys, I guess the main little chibi guys, we each had our own little flair to it. So I kind of blew up from that, I guess on social media. And as I sort of started to, build that um that's when i got uh, a lot of design jobs that's when marvel had contacted me and this would have been 2017 i believe uh to design their whole superhero adventure line it was like their toddler line so um all all the uh, images you'd see on like your kids backpacks and underwear and bed spreads and you know all these things so i got to do like that that was that was fun and then uh about like two weeks after that job had came my way, Hasbro had reached out to me to do design work for them. So I started doing toys around that time. So it was like kind of like this big explosion in my freelance career. Yeah, it sounds like 2017. It. Yeah, I just kind of hit, it all hit at the right time. That was really eye-opening because I was able to like sustain myself financially, like on mm-hmm. my own at that point. And steady work just was like coming all the time. So as that's kind of happening, and I had done the comics with Sean and, I, I didn't really have like my own in to comics like in and I think I was doing so well on the freelance design side that I was kind of I didn't want to pull away and try to get I knew comics weren't going to pay as much. Yeah. And so there was the uh, allure of, you know, financial stability through design jobs. But I still had that itch because, you know, I'd been doing the comic work with Sean and I wanted to sort of get back to comics. So um, I started started to lay out this sort of like idea in my head. I'm like, okay, I'm starting to build this following up. I had had this urge to get back into comics now. Ever since I worked with Sean, I was sort of like, it, it scratched the itch, and but it was it wasn't fully scratched. It was like really re- reawakening, uh, like a, a mission you've had for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it was like this, mon- like this monster that was like yes. lur- lurking in my soul. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that led to me uh, writing Rune World and drawing Rune World, mm-hmm. which was my first actual written and fully drawn comic that I'd ever done on my own. And I think like I was really scared. I, I was always, I was always worried about the writing side of things. I'd always always drawn, and I was confident drawing, and I, you know, I knew I could handle that side of it. But the writing side of it, I was, I never taken a writing class. I never like yeah. wasn't great in English. <laughs> you know, all I had was my consuming of media throughout mm-hmm. my life mm-hmm. to sort of fall back on for like you know um how to how to structure a story for reference and, and yeah yeah and reference and stuff like that and um but i'd seen like you know headlopper had come out um i believe around that time that was a big inspiration because andrew mclean was drawing and writing and doing mm-hmm. it all himself essentially and 
you know, when I started to see those artists that were doing that, I was like, maybe I can do something like that, like too. Like you know, yeah. you sort of see others kind of leading the way, and you know, and they're successful at it, and they're things that like you know, you're like, I would love to have a book like that. I would love to have a piece of art that's. Yeah you know, in comic form, that's a full book and somebody can hand it to somebody. I'm like, I really, that, that became like a real big uh, driving force. I think like, yeah. Um, also barbarian Lord from Matt Smith was another big inspiration. Again, that was something he wrote and drew himself. I think just seeing these artists doing it and I'm like, Hey, you know what? Maybe at yeah. this point in my life, I think I'm about 38, 39 at the time. I'm like, I think I can do this. Like, I think I can finally yeah, you built it. up enough confidence at that point that yeah yeah and i'm did like you, you have, know what i can just hmm. did you have at that time a good network of you mentioned sean obviously but are there other writers that you could bounce off of and, and share pitches or, or ideas or writing with and be like is this okay does this work did you have a a, a network or just some friends to help you with that I just had a couple of friends. I didn't really have a big network. I think I'm like socially, I'm a little bit introverted and I don't, I don't always feel comfortable reaching out to people, especially yeah. strangers yeah. uh, or somebody I don't know that well. Um, I don't like putting the burden on someone to say like, Hey, can you read this? You know, even when it's yeah. a close friend, but I had my wife and my wife um, who uh, is like super supportive of everything I do. She's sort of been my soundboard. She's the person I'll bring into my office and run an idea by her, a pitch, pitch her an idea. What do you think of this? So it's great because, you know, I do work alone in my studio at home and having her here to like, you know, she, she works, she's a stay at home mom, but she also works at the school um, where my kids go. And, but she's available most of the time that I, when I need her for those, those moments. So yeah, I think it was just kind of a perfect storm of like stability. I, I gained from the freelance um, the the itch that was scratched was Sean or started to get scratched, but like it was growing and I need to fulfill mm -hmm. my wife being here to sort of support me and in, in all these endeavors. Yeah, it was just kind of this perfect and So having a, a built in audience or a social following from right. From and I think that really friend. yeah, and that really helped because I didn't have like any uh real like I mean I had credits with the books I'd done with Sean, but they were like inking credits or you know, assisted credit you know they weren't really yeah. like prominent in the comic world so but i happened to reach out to boom uh studios and the one of their editors um whitney leopard had liked the project and um believed in it and she helped like kind of pitch it internally for me i had already written uh one issue that was sort of like my i wanted to prove to myself that i could do this and so i made i, I wrote one issue i printed it i sold it sold out of it i, I think i did maybe 300 copies I printed and I was mm -hmm. able to sell them out pretty quickly on my website. So that was sort of a nice little bump. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I can make a comic and I can sell it. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this yep. is going to work. Like, I think, you know, there's something here. Um, it's not a complete waste of my time. Like um, regardless of a publisher was going to pick it up, I, I could at least move some books on my own. Yeah, so I mean, that's amazing. Like nice... Three, 300 copies of your first self-published book. Like that, that's incredible <laughs> on its own. Right. Yeah. No, like, and I mean, that was a testament to the fan base I'd built up. Yes, absolutely. You know, and and um, so, yeah, so anyway, Boom signed on to the book and that was great. You know, they they wanted to sort of, uh, I think, test me out a little bit first and they had me do a short story for uh, Adventure Time. So I got to do a little short mm -hmm. story for Adventure Time. I believe it was in Adventure Time 18, I think it was published in. I was supposed to do a cover and do the interior, one of the interior stories. And then I guess one of their cover artists uh, didn't deliver on time. So they had to bump my cover because I was done early. So they had to bump mine to like issue 17. Then my story oh. appeared in 18. Yeah, you were too quick. So yeah. I was too quick. And I was like, oh, I kind of wanted it to be in the same thing. But uh, yeah, what can you do? Better to have it in the same book. But, you know. But double exposure. So sure. I guess I can't. Sure. Really now you were in two issues of it. Right? Yeah. yeah. But it was funny, though, to see the marketing side of things. Because just from that, um, doing that little bit, that gave me like a, it gave boom an opportunity to say like, Hey, Derek Lofman from adventure time. Yeah. And they kind of tied it. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. I'm like, Oh, that's how you do this. <laughs> that's how you yeah. market. You know, I didn't really understand the marketing yeah. side of things. It was Tie yourself real quick to a property and then you can, yeah, just start using that. Yeah. So basically that was like, you know, I had done uh, Rune World. I planned it for a five issue miniseries. I had sort of left the door open to do more if it took off. But um, to be honest, I think all ages comics in the comic uh, space um, 
was uh, a bit of a challenge to, to move enough books to really warrant more. Yeah. Um, it had done well compared to some of the other things that were out there all ages, but it wasn't cracking. Like, I think we only sold the first issue, sold maybe 7,500 copies, um, which <laughs> only that. <laughs> Those are good well, numbers. No, I mean, it's okay, right. but it's not, you know, but the, the problem is I learned really quick as well. I got to see like, well, one, uh, the comic studios, they're going to push your first issue a lot mm -hmm. because they know that that's where the bulk of the, you know, orders oh, yeah. are coming from that first yep. one. They know the second issue before the first issue even gets picked up. They're already putting in orders, the shops for the second issue. So they automatically just cut those in half. Unless for some reason you're like, somehow got a huge word of mouth and there's, you know, you got to maybe something. Yeah. If some something buzz, extraordinary some happens. Yeah. Right. Right. And so it was a quick lesson for me on how the sort of comic industry works. Um, yeah. So it was like second issue was only going to sell half that basically. Mm -hmm. And then the next one after that's going to dip a little more and the next yeah. one dip a little more. So by the time you're all said and done, you, you know, your book hasn't made that much money, you know, for your five issues, yeah. um, not enough to warrant doing a whole nother, you know, series. Plus the other thing was uh, at the time, Boom didn't really let on, but uh, they were sort of getting out of the all ages space. So maybe it was just bad timing a little bit too when my book was coming out. This was like 2018. Um, and they were just starting to kind of like ease themselves out of the all ages yeah. space. So even when the graphic novel dropped like a year later, there wasn't much of a big push yeah. for it. They're which I was kind of push I was it to the side a little bit. A, a little bit. I mean, I, I was a little bit disappointed in in the amount of push it got, just because I thought that's where the book would have been successful in the yes. all ages realm. Was it yeah. would have been the graphic novel, but it's still like you know, it it gave, it gave me enough like sort of like overall like the, the project gave me a lot of confidence um, that I could how, sort of make comics on. My how own. many uh, issues was that before the collected edition? It was five. Five. Yeah. You know, I had like 120 pages uh, under my belt, I guess. Um, yep. You know, nice little crash course. And Boom's a great credit comics. too. Yeah, Boom was a nice credit to have. And, yeah. and um, you know, the uh, the property got shopped around a lot um, to different networks and things like that. Nothing really came of it yet, but you never know. It's still time. Sure. Um, it still could happen. So, you know, those opportunities kind of opened up here and there. I had different like studios kind of reaching out to me just about the property, like even outside of Boom, like a lot of places i've noticed it and it sort of reached out like other studios and things like that um like animation studios and things so that were sort of just like you know sparking their interest so yeah like it was just it was there was a, it was a good experience overall in spite of the fact that it didn't like it wasn't this huge success and now i was a successful comic artist i was just going to yeah. go off and make comics now professionally you know as as my main gig so it still sort of was in that thing where i was still going to do comics part-time that was Doing that series, though, um, trying to get five issues done while I was balancing freelance work was mm -hmm. insane. Like that, yeah. <laughs> that, that that year of my life, I did have basically before um, the contract got signed. By that point, I had had two issues pretty much done. So I had to do three issues in the span of two months per issue. So it was about six months. So that six months was pretty hellish. Were was, they were they written at that time, and you were finishing up the art? I, had, I no, you... I had only I had only written uh, plot outlines for okay. the other three books. So, yeah, it was it was daunting. So was yeah, daunting. start to I finish. Did, yeah, well, and I kind of like here's the thing too. I, I sort of not being a trained writer in the comic world. When I did the first issue, I wrote it pretty much on the page. Mm -hmm. I was it was like this like I I'd rough outline my beats. But then I was doing the writing majority on the page. And I found that to be really kind of like cathartic. It just, it worked to almost like have the characters acting on the page. And then if I wanted to have them like change or like, hey, you know, it'd be funny if they tweak this dialogue or this moment happened. I can almost like make the edit on the fly. And it was kind of like oh, making yeah. my own little movie. And so like there was a, there was a, a certainly a benefit to a, to a writer who was, you know very uh, green <laughs> to to sort of like you know maybe made it a little bit easier because i can almost like do the writing through the art mm -hmm. you're like reacting to your own work yeah right yeah. and then punching it up with the dialogue yes. so that's where it was, it was like almost like the, the writing became the punch up and i guess i was like more writing it through art than i was through yeah so you just like had the plot drew the plot and then sort of right yeah, based the how the how the dialogue and and the actual writing would evolve through doing the art first, right? And and the thing is too, like I I, I sort of realized at that moment as well is that I I can make comics how I want to make them. There's no 
there's no set rule to be like, oh, you have to do it this way. I, I kind of thought going in that I probably had, you know, screwed up and I should have done it this other way. And sure, certainly there would have been some maybe uh, less uh, headaches um, <laughs> that I <laughs> yeah. ran into <laughs> I bet, yeah. along, along the way, especially when it came to um, trying to fit, you know, a certain amount of uh, plot points into a 22 page. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, you're always thinking about, you know, when you have the little plot points, like where they're going to land on the page. So you're like, you know, you want to have the page turn. Something mm-hmm. happens. Even odd page. pages. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're considering all this stuff and you're like, okay, I have four pages now to tell this part of the story I need to squeeze in. Yes. And where you want to let some character beats maybe breathe out a little bit. Oh, you yeah, can't. Definitely you moments page I couldn't. Count. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So there was definitely some uh, learning. It was a steep learning curve there. Um, and I did for the last three issues I did. And because I was working with an editor at that point for the sake of her sanity, I did write out the actual yeah. scripts. <laughs> yeah. That would be three. very helpful for an editor. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I figured if I did the other way, she would, hate me so yeah so i did get a, a little bit of a, a crash course in actually writing comic scripts that way um and i sometimes do i, I think i now i do a hybrid like when i work for myself i kind of do a hybrid of that i think for moments i know that i sort of can already like i can write them out and they just kind of flow and it works but then for other areas of the script where maybe i'm not sure sometimes i'm like maybe i'll figure that out on the page i yeah. kind of know what's going to happen i know what the you know especially for action sequences. I find like for me, like I'll write four pages fight scene. <laughs> like yeah. that's, yeah. you know, <laughs> and like <laughs> character kicks butt here. <laughs> so in all of that, you actually, um, you touched on a number of things that I, that I was planning to ask you about. Um, but I guess one of those that I'll dive into right now is the working relationship that you have with your wife, which mm-hmm. you, you, you mentioned bouncing ideas there. In one of your previous books, The Witch of Wickerson, the bonus content you include at the back, you discuss at length bouncing ideas off of your wife and uh, how she helped you craft that story and figure out what the book was intended to be. Uh, And then by the time Crimson Fall is out, uh, she's co-credited on the book. It's a book by Derek Loffman, edited by Valerie Loffman. So could you maybe discuss how, uh, how that sort of professional relationship uh developed over time like how, how she became an editor more than just a, a bouncing board for ideas could you uh maybe go into go into some detail on that for me please sure so uh, i wouldn't say it's a traditional editing role um it's more like a copy editor but then she has a hand in like i said being my sound soundboard for ideas telling me if something is not working um speaking through the ideas uh she's She's a great listener and she's good at sort of being patient at saying like, you know, when you have a creator who's got a thousand ideas and is all over the place and Hey, what do you think if we do this? And what do you think if the characters do this? And Hey, well, I actually, we're gonna go back and do maybe the other yeah. thing I was thinking and, and stuff like that. So she has a lot of patience. You know, I think that is, uh, you know, the perfect sort of a relationship for me when it comes to like having a creative person to sort of make a little creative partnership with her. Um, she's not overbearing with her ideas, which is good for somebody who's got a lot of ideas and maybe is a little bit thick headed, um, (laughs) at times. Uh, but, uh, you know, ultimately, like if something's not working, she's going to point it out. And I think that's important. Like, you know, because sometimes you can get tunnel vision or she might say like, you need to put this thing back in there because I really like that comedic moment. Or I really like this character. Don't cut that out. Like, you know, those type of things. Um, so she doesn't edit. That's the thing too. I think it's kind of nice. She doesn't edit me like, you know, if I had an editor, it'd feel more like a boss maybe telling you what, you know, where it's not that. And I, and I think I, that's where I, I like it. Cause it allows me to be completely free creatively without really somebody, you know, hanging something over my head saying, you need to do it this way. This is the way it's going to sell or this is or this maybe ideal. giving you deadlines. You have to finish that page a deadline. By, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have to deal with any of that. So, and, um, and then she's just, she's much better at, um, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I'm horrible at English. So she'll pick up on my grammar mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really need her for that. Um, That's as well. very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, just make me not seem like an idiot. Um, and uh, yeah, we even like have her mom do like a co-proofread as well. It's really nice just to kind of have the two of them sort of giving eyeballs on stuff. We can't catch every spelling mistake, unfortunately. It's, uh, it's still... Uh, but oh, I've, uh, yeah. I've been there right after you send something to print, you realize, oh, <laughs> oh that word. Uh, 
yeah no that's 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 a painful moment yeah it is is. (laughs) but it happens like it's gonna happen all the time so it does happen and you know and like uh you know bot nine uh, one of the books i'd done i'd done um it was published uh in spain and they did print run and they double printed a page it was like two twice you'd see it pop up again in like a couple pages later (laughs) like the same page and I was like, "Hey, even the professionals uh, can make mistakes." So, how did that did that push back? Um, no, like later really... pages. Did it mess up the odd? Even, it, it, uh... it seemed like it kind of it kind of because it was a wordless book. Um, it was a wordless graphic novel. It sort of kind of worked. If that makes sense, if you look it through it, like it yeah. kind of still works. Yeah, it wasn't completely egregious. But um, they weren't going to reprint it, so and, it and now you is. now you print locally instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was I mean that was through like I mean just in Spain. So um, I've I've had a few publishing deals where I'll I'll still self publish myself here in like North America. Okay, yeah, I understand. But over in like Europe, a uh, few markets have like published my books. Um, yeah, you know where they just have a limited uh, to that area, which is kind of nice because again yeah. I still maintain all my control and. Um, things like that so yeah and then you don't have to ship them you know cross-continent yeah they can print them and sell them over there all on their own that's yeah yeah so another another thing that i wanted to ask you about which again you kind of covered in in your backstory is i wanted to ask you if you did have a a history in animation uh, because flipping through your books your your art style is incredibly dynamic and there's such a sense of action especially on those pages that you describe as oh we'll do four pages of action and then you figure it out while you draw um mm-hmm. i think you nail a lot of those moments I, th- I think they come across really well and um so i was wondering if you if you did have uh, a history of animating action because because your work feels so very fluid and and, and so mobile in a, in a lot of your action um, I have limited uh, animation experience, I guess, professionally. It was more on the video game side of things. Um, I did some 2D pixel animation when I first got into video games. Um, it was that long ago. There's still GBA, um, the Game Boy Advance. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first the first console I worked on. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I've had some, some history doing pixel animation. I mean, obviously, the, the animation skills that I learned through three years mm-hmm. of uh, at Sheridan definitely lends itself to the, the, the style in which I draw today. Yeah. That's um, what I, I that's what for, I mean by saying you kind of answered that already is saying like, Oh yeah, you did years of, of, of this. Yeah. Program. So like, although I haven't been an actual like animator animator, I've had to animate like for my own games and things like that, but it's, you know, a few frames here and there. It's not a full fledged, you know, you, you need four runs for or four frames for a run cycle and you know, whatever, like this jump might need, you know, six frames, you know? So it's like, you know, little bits of animation, more like keyframes, I, I guess, of animation rather than actual full-fledged animated mm-hmm. 30 frames or whatever. Yeah. Do, do you find yourself consciously leaning back on, on those principles that you learned um, while you're doing mm-hmm. comics? Like, say, while you're doing an action scene in Crimson Fall, are you thinking actively about some of the stuff that you learned? Yes. Yeah. No, I, I'm always, like, trying to, like, I think in, even in my head when I'm the action's happening, like, I, I try to visualize the the full um, animated movement, but mm-hmm. then I'm pulling one, one image from that, mm-hmm. you know, movement. Um, yeah. I just, I think it's important to have, like, I mean, I like seeing movement in comics myself. Like I don't like stiffness um, in, in comics. And, and uh, although I should, I mean, I, I love Mike Mignola and at times he can be really stiff, but then at yeah. times he can really get animated. So yeah, they, well, there are, there are times for all of it, right? There's, there's room mm-hmm. for, for stillness. There's room for action. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, um, yeah, especially when I'm bringing any kind of action to it, I'm trying to, bring as much animated movement into the scene as possible if i if i can like whatever i can kind of squeeze in there mm-hmm. i try i try to bring some of that i didn't grow up with manga comics but i imagine that would have been helpful as well because manga is really good at capturing like an action mm-hmm. sequence and you know through various like techniques and you know speed lines and things like that that yes. i i try to i try to utilize myself but i'm not as proficient as they are <laughs> takes practice right so it does the more the more you try to use those things in in future books i'm sure they're going to start popping up more and more is what i would expect yeah for sure for sure so getting back to my my handy dandy list of questions that i have here uh, another thing that i wanted to ask you about for crimson fall since 
I am very interested in asking you about that book specifically as my little my little October Halloween uh, horror celebration. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about your choice to to publish this book in black and white. Um, okay. Was that a creative distinction that you made? You said you wanted this to be black and white, or was it more of a budgetary concern that maybe, like in a in a later volume, you might uh, you might do colors because like your colored work is is fantastic. But obviously, the black and white lends a lot to this book, at least in my opinion, I think it does. So maybe to discuss how you came to that decision. So I was I was toying around with this world of, of Crimson Fall, and I had done a lot of uh, the designs in color. But I don't know, like, I, I think I just I, I've, I've started to dive into manga in the last like, three or four years. Um, and there's probably a bit of influence there. I wanted to see if I could do it. When I was sort of creating Crimson Fall, uh, there was an anthology for the Raid Studio that they needed a fill-in for. They needed a fill-in story. And I'd sort of started to toy around with Crimson Fall and, and, and started to write this little sequence. And it was like the six-page uh, opening sequence of what the Lambs of God is. And I told them, I'm like, well, you know, they, they sort of needed it in a pinch. And they think, do you have anything? I'm like, well, I kind of have this short story you know it's it's a six pager it's it could act as a teaser for mm. something something bigger so i actually like uh did um uh screen tones for for that for that actually i i i didn't fully do the the black and white that that's there now um i had done like some screen tone um stuff just to kind of try it out um for that i ended up ultimately deciding that the screen tone wasn't the way to go for when I wanted to do the book. But I, since I'd already sort of produced um, that six page short um, in screen tone, black and white, I liked the sort of horror feel of it. There was, mm -hmm. you know, that aspect of it. I know part of me, you know, in this discussion I even had with my wife, she was like, you know, people really like your colored comics and yeah. maybe it won't sell as much being in black and white. Um, we kind of had that decision, but part of what Crimson Fall is um, as, a, as a whole, as a project is, a creative sandbox for me to tell like fantasy horse stories. Like that's what Crimson Fall really became was what's that's the crux of it. That's mm -hmm. why I kind of created this world. I, I've had these urges to, uh, I'm like a big fan of the Witcher, big fan of Hellboy, mm -hmm. Mike Mandola, I mentioned earlier. Um, those are two of the biggest influences on this book. Um, I was, uh, was, I was definitely getting Baltimore vibes <laughs> while reading it. What's that one? Um, uh, it's another Mignola book. Uh, like oh, I don't think I've read that one. You haven't read? Oh, well, no. there's a recommendation for you. Okay, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, um, yeah the uh, so that was sort of I, I listened to an interview with Mignola about Hellboy, and he talked about how he wanted he wanted something like essentially the same thing, like a platform to tell his like horror stories, and it sort of like clicked the light bulb in my head. I'm like, oh, I'm like I have all these like. I've been doing a lot of like all ages books. Um, my previous three books before that have been all ages and I wanted to do something more adult and I've been wanting to do something a little more. I'm always big, big on like fantasy horror. You know, I love game of Thrones and like, you know, so I wanted to kind of do my own little spin on that. And I thought if I create a horror anthology sort of universe, because I liked the Hellboy short stories even more than the long ones. I, I really like those collected books of uh, Hellboy short stories. It's just a fun in and out. And it's good for me too, as like somebody who dabbles in comics in my free time, if I want to do a short 20 page story, you know, 24 pages, I'll get it for Crimson Fall Lambs of God. It's easier to kind of get something complete and done. And then at some point, possibly I'll just collect everything as an anthology, yep. maybe down the road. Um, but uh, for now they can just be standalone books and um you know, it's nice too. I, I like. I always like picking up comics where I don't need to continuously buy yeah. issues of something. It's nice, like you know, if you like this kind of world, well, the next story will be in that world, and you'll get that same vibe, but it'll be a different story. And it'll be self-contained, and you can just read it on its own, but you can read them all. And I kind of like that yes. sort of freedom for the reader, like less sort of. Um... I don't know. I was going to say serialized, but I guess I guess it's maybe yeah. more serialized. <laughs> well, I mean, it's but less, le it's less, less in the commitment, less episodic, maybe is is what I'm yes. after. Yeah, right. Um, where and it doesn't it feel allows... like you're you're picking up single pieces of a longer story. You're getting a whole story all all individually every time. Right, and you know, it's sort of like 
you know, whether or not to like where I, you know, within Crimson Fall, like the first book um, revolves around um, Sir Duncross, who's a, a former knight turned uh, monster slayer. And, you know, and then he, he meets Father McKellen, who's a sort of reluctant priest uh, that, um, you know, doesn't necessarily believe in the horrors that are going on in the world. So who are had a... both great characters. So let me just chime <laughs> that in there. Thanks. It was fun too. As I always love characters that are kind of polar opposites of each other. Yeah, yeah. And, the dynamic uh, duo there, like the the buddy cop vibes, are are off the charts. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. I'm always a big fan of that kind of thing, and I love I love having characters that can play off each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and play against their their differences. And actually, like you know, and sometimes the characters will meet. You know, a little bit in the middle. I think there's a little bit of like that's part of their storylines through the through that. You know story is that they almost like intersect in their mm -hmm. moralities and their way they sort of like or like how they you know are going to interact in the world you know where father mckellen doesn't want to step over a dead body in the beginning but by the end he's yes. willing to do things that like you know yeah, there's a bit of a uh, sort of role of. reversal or yeah like you said they're mm -hmm. learning each other's sort of worldviews by the end of it yeah. Right. So, and I, and I think that's, they're definitely a fun duo that I'm going to like my next uh, story in Crimson Fall is uh, called the shore tower. And it's another, they're sort of now teamed up uh, and uh, doing uh, uh, their first mission sort of like on their own. <laughs> yeah. Um, there so was uh, something I was meaning to ask you about regarding characters and that I got this, mm -hmm. uh, this bookmark <laughs> that, that right. came with uh Witcher Wickerson. Uh, but it's a Crimson Fall bookmark that has this whole cast of characters. It's got it's got Sir Duncross and Father McKellen on it, but it has these four other characters as well. Or maybe my, the vibes I was getting is maybe they are time jumped repeats of the same characters. Maybe like no, no, Sir they're Duncross all they're all different they're characters. All six no, distinct different. characters. So yeah, moving forward in Crimson Fall, are they going to include all of the characters? Are you sort of dropping? Uh, the two from Lambs of God to introduce two new ones, or how is that going to play out? Right. So, like, um, I think uh, the sort of ideas like I have for each of those characters, I have some story ideas for them um, that I want to tell. Um, but I might try to intertwine maybe like a Sir Duncross into a story, but it might be like a little cameo mm. or something to sort of tie it in uh, a little bit. Um, some of the, you know, one of the characters is also a monster hunter, the girl with the crossbow. And, uh, you know, so there's, you know, and there's a history with the the knight that has the girl on his, on his back, which is his daughter. You know, he and Sir Don Cross were once in part of the same knighthood together. So there's some, like, it's just things all right. Like, you <laughs> know, these stories, things that are, yeah, I don't know how much will be revealed to the reader but it's important for i think the creator to understand this broader world yeah um, absolutely and sort of build out these characters in it and somewhat i guess kind of like game of thrones where you know each uh, individual characters have their story within the world that's happening it's like it's everything's moving this this this, this wheel's moving um you know in the story but everybody's got their little part in it um and i kind of like to think of it a bit like that um not necessarily holding myself to that standard or anything but yeah. um you know that's kind of kind of what i'm thinking but it also allows me to have freedom and if there is a time jump or if there is a anything like that i can kind of do that and i think that's sort of i guess the beauty of an anthology is it really does allow freedom and i think as a creator i want to allow myself as much freedom to uh you know tell the stories i want to tell and mm -hmm. not handcuff myself too much but it is nice to have a a little sandbox to play in with some rules. Yes. It doesn't allow you to kind of go completely off the deep end. Yeah, absolutely. You, you set it all up to begin with, and then you can start moving things around, playing with them as you, as you write it, as, as the story evolves, it can take its own exactly. shape over time. Right. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you very briefly mentioned was the, the, the world, as you put it, the world of Crimson Fall, which mm -hmm. I am, am very curious about because obviously it, it it's it's fantastical there are monsters and and as you say monster slayers this is clearly a, a fantasy work but there are real world concepts in it like they go to an abbey uh, what appears to be a christian abbey with you know crucifixes <laughs> hung up all over right. the place like this appears to be real world historical fiction 
in some aspects. So I'm wondering uh, how much of that is intentional? Was there a lot of like historical research and you're trying to set this in a specific period in real world, I'm assuming European medieval history, or is this just pure fantasy with some sort of inspirations and crossover to what we'd be familiar with? Yeah, I think the latter, which you meant is probably more similar to what it is. Um, I'm not, I didn't want to, yeah, it's like, it's like the religion, you know, using the Christian symbols, it's sort of like, I kind of look at it like an alternative universe to maybe okay. our, our world is the kind of probably easiest way to sort of explain that. Um, you know, it's nice to have common themes that you're sort of familiar with. Um, so there's less exposition dump when there's just common themes that are already exist. Um, I don't have to have a character sit there and explain the religion mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, yeah, you, you can know, just I lean on shorthand from symbols that we recognize rather than have some weird right. symbol on the wall and have a bubble where a character has to explain, oh, that's our religion. This is blah, 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 blah. Like you can just. Exactly. Yeah, but, just know. but at the same time, at the same time, like I don't need to um, have it like, you know, maybe the. The, the head of the church doesn't need to be a pope that's at the Vatican, you know, or anything like, you don't need to tie in real world things. I can kind of create my own version of that within this world. And that's yeah. sort of what I'm sort of looking at. And even timeline wise, like, I don't need to um, necessarily say it's 11th century or whatever. It's 14th yeah. century. And this is, these are the tools they had to work with. Yeah, so then you have to be if very to beholden to all these historical accuracies and right. like somebody's going to point out something you did wrong eventually. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like if I want to add like a steampunk element in there, maybe, yeah. or some sort of weapon or some mechanism, if I, if that lends itself to a story and I want to have that in there, you know, obviously the fantasy stuff kind of breaks those rules anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, when you have sort of magical weapons or, you know, introduce magics into the world. Or um, creatures you know, and, you know. Creatures and <laughs> yeah, potions. Demons yeah, so and, demons yeah. and ghosts and all that stuff, witches and, and uh, you know. So it's sort of just, yeah, I'd say it's just like a loosely based on our reality, but, you know, with, with room for me to break all those conventional rules whenever I see fit. Yep. Um, that, and maybe that's like a, just a good the, way to the do arrogance, it. the arrogance of a creator. Um, you know, you get to play God essentially in your <laughs> in your story yeah. making. You get to move the pieces around however you uh, however you choose them to be. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you about the the characters that we've been talking about, Father McKell and Sir Duncross. And like I said, the the dynamic <laughs> the duo uh, is is strong with with the two of them. And I wanted to ask you how how you created them were they inspired by other fictional characters from other stories other mediums where you're like oh i really like sort of the idea of these two personality traits let me do my take on them or maybe inspired mm -hmm. by real people that you know or uh what what was the um the process behind creating those characters and deciding to pair them together so um so duncross is a bit of there's a little bit of the hound in him a little bit like not, he's not as cutthroat as the Hound, but I wouldn't say he's quite like as little... edge lordy as the Hound. But I, I could see, right. yeah. <laughs> there's, but there's a there's a definitely a darkness to him. Yes, um, he has a dark backstory, um, a rough childhood. He mentions in the next book, just almost offhanded comments, and I think that's sort of like a bit of the Hound in him where a hound will mention something that happened to him or something that, you know, his, his past and almost does it nonchalantly, even though it's yeah. like a horrific event, um, you know, and these things that sort of shape, you know, who his character is, you know, how do you have somebody who would be, has a horrible childhood experience, grows up to become a knight that's got to be sort of altruistic, but then, finds himself struggling with that altruism because of his sort of dark past and his conflicts with who he is internally a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't, he's not a, he's not good at following the rules. He's a bit of a loner. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he's a little bit of, there's a little bit of me in there in that regard, <laughs> likes to do things his way. Um, well, I assume at least and, as, as a writer, when I do my own work, there's a bit of me in, in every character, right? You, you draw from yourself for, for, sure. for everyone in different ways. Yeah, for sure. And I think like father McKellen, um, you know, is interesting in that uh, I like those characters, probably a little bit of a Sam, I guess, if I'm pulling Game of Thrones characters, a yep. little bit of Sam in there, but he's a much older Sam. And there's, uh, I don't know, like, I, this is like, so I'm not religious. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing too, when I'm doing something that's got a religious undertone, mm -hmm. because I look at religion from a storytelling standpoint. Yes. And I, I find that, I find it interesting 
I find all religions sort of interesting from a storytelling standpoint. I, I yeah, totally agree I mean, with that. I'm I'm also an atheist. Like I, I'm not religious at all, but I, I'm so fascinated by religious people and people who have faith. And every time I'm writing, I'm always trying to think of like um, the religious aspect of it. And even I'm a giant nerd. I play D and D a lot. I find myself always drawn right. to playing like clerics or or whatever. Right. Or, I, yeah, I don't know. Which... There's something so fascinating from an outsider's perspective on that. Yeah, well, and I think inherently, I mean, you know, from my perspective, I guess, like, when I think about somebody who's, you know, religious, they're usually pretty thoughtful. You know, I have a lot of religious people in my family. And, you know, they're caring, they're thoughtful. And, you know, they're not they're, they They want to do the right thing. You know, they're driven towards that. Um, so I'd like that for a character, especially if they have to break that at times, if they have to go outside. I like when characters have to be pushed outside of their comfort zone yeah you know and um i think that's where having two characters of different extremes you know it allows you to sort of push them uh, a little further and it just makes for better moments in this story yeah um, letting them push each other you know? a little bit yeah right yeah yeah it's like a push this push and pull like this yin, yin and yang of yeah. uh you know and, that, and i think that's where um I think, well, Father McKellen started as just a character design when I was kind of coming up with sort of these ideas, you know, I kind of had, he's, he's a big, like, uh, you know, um, stout, uh, broad, very round, <laughs> round man. And, uh, you know, so I think he was born with, with shapes, um, that yes. is how he kind of started. And I liked his contrast of shape. Um, mm -hmm. to Duncross and I think uh, you know from an artistic standpoint they, they kind of you know um, play off each other nicely yeah. it's fun to draw characters of different it's a tried and true combination the like the shorter rounder mm -hmm. and the taller leaner like that that's just yeah that's the it's a fun, winning it's just, combo something, it? yeah it just sort of works and yeah. uh, there's a little bit of like I went back to like Spawn had like Sam and Twitch you know like like those two character designs were like two opposites like the big round that, that reference um, you know. is kind of lost on me. Not a huge Spawn guy, but okay. I, mean, so the, Sam I can think Twitch, of tons Sam of those. For the, 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 yeah, they were detectives in the Spawn comic, and one was a tall, skinny character. The other one was kind of like a more plump, round I was one. Thinking, like not the, the wet bandits, Home the Alone, or Jay and Silent Bob, <laughs> sure. or like yeah. the, there's tons. Yeah, of them. yeah, another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's kind of like how that kind of came about. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, no, was. absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> how 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 you. Uh, what what inspired those characters? How you came up with them? But uh, as a little add on to yeah. that, I'm always curious about names. How, where did you uh, come up with with Duncross and McKellen? You know, it was uh, McKellen. There's my, my my son has a friend named Kellen, um, and mm -hmm. uh, it's just an interesting name. And I'm like, Kellen's an interesting name. I'm like, I put like a Mick in front of it, McKellen. It kind of feels like a priest name. It just sort yeah. of worked. So that was just a random one, Duncross. I. I I don't even know how I came up with it. I think it was just one of those things. It just, it was a happy accident. It just kind of popped in my head when I was trying to like, and I started scripting it with this like scenario. I just, in it, there was a little bit of a like tongue in cheek because he, he's sort of against the church a little yep. bit. So he's done yep. with the cross. There's like a little, like a little <laughs> bit of a tongue in cheek there. Um, and uh, yeah, so that just kind of like, that's how that came about. Like they both work accent. really well. They're both very fitting names. And obviously, like the designs, you just instantly get their personality just by looking at the design of them, especially That's... McKellen. Like, you know that character right away. I think you you nailed yeah. that. Well, well, I think the thing is, it probably, you know, my the most joy I have is when I create a character and it works. Like, and I know it works. Like, you know, it's like you just know. You're like, oh, this is like the right fit. Yeah. Um. And, you know, that kind of moment is just like this aha moment. And you're like, I need to write <laughs> stories. I need to write stories about these characters. Like when you yes. have that sort of, and I just love designing uh, characters in general and sort of just letting my mind sort of explore, you know, shape and, and design and, and little things like that. And then it just sort of morphs into this bigger picture. It does seem like character design is... is uh... I guess a passion or, or at least a, a strength of yours for sure. And in, in all, in all your books that I've seen, I think you, you really excel with character designs for sure. Thank you. I guess I want to ask you before we go about, um, and you've already sort of alluded to this and mentioned it more crimson fall. Is there more coming soon? What, what can, what can readers expect a wait or a future volume to be like, is it going to continue to be standalone uh, floppy issues? I don't mean floppy as a, 
bad word sometimes <laughs> <laughs> sometimes floppy is a little a little unkind but i think you know what i mean what can yeah. we expect so i am working on uh, the next crimson falls story um ironically we mentioned earlier about black and white this one's going to be in color part of the whole anthology idea is that it allows me to also not only explore different um stories within this world but also as an artist just sort of experiment mm -hmm. with different styles i'm always that is trying a to very cool idea yeah yeah, like it just sort of allows me to push outside of my comfort zone a little bit here and there. Part of like the black and white uh, was to do that. Um, use different types of brushes, different mediums, things like that. So this one's going to be color and a longer story for about 48 pages called The Shore Tower. It's about a sort of uh, island that's being uh, haunted by a monster. And I won't really get into the. <laughs> That's the a bit vague, logistics. but I mean, it it's, is it's enough a bit to vague. have me interested. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a bit vague. It's just it's a fun, different setting for them. Um, and is it featuring the same two characters? Yeah, it'll be we... Father McKellen okay. and and Don Cross. Um, yeah, going on a mission. It allows me to sort of dig into their backstory a little bit, especially Don Cross a little bit. Like I mentioned, um, mm -hmm. uh, we meet one of his old friends. Yeah, so the plan for that book I'm hoping to have done for TCAF next year, which is the Toronto Comics and Arts Festival. That's which is the, the best festival. It. it is the best festival. It's it is my the favorite. best one. Yeah. My favorite uh, comic con um, type event, I guess you could say. Probably actually more of a comic con than the other comic cons. Yep, it's the <laughs> one that has comics at it the most. Comics. Yeah, it actually has comics. And yeah, uh, yeah it's my favorite. So um that is the goal to have it done for then so i'm, I'm going to try to get it finished by the end of the year that's my goal i'm probably i'm about 30 percent done right now well you can um, have I your, just need your wife editor set your deadlines uh, get on you about <laughs> that's it that's right that's right well it's like it's like you know i kind of look at this like the upcoming months ahead i have i have a kickstarter coming out october 2nd my third art book creations of volume three so i'm trying to get that finished um Kickstarter is all set up. Um, our book's almost done. I have a few pages left to do um, for that and get that off to the printer. I sort of look at it like I'll have a sprint of work. Um, October's coming up, and um, so I'll be running the Kickstarter through that month. That takes a lot of my time up. Plus, I'll be doing oh, yeah. drawings probably throughout the month. Just, uh, you know, I don't really have a plan for this Inktober. I sort of every year I go in thinking I'm going to have this big, huge plan. And I've only done that ever once where I actually had a plan and followed through. That's where the Witcher Wickerson came from. Yep. Yeah. This year, I'm sort of just like, I'll see what I can do. I'll do as much as I can. And then once that's done, I'm going to have basically November, December, maybe part of January to finish up the rest. I usually find like for design work, Christmas is usually slow, like the December month. And uh, so I'm hoping that that's sort of like my my little spurt yeah. to get it finished. That's your opening to, <laughs> to get done the second Crimson Fall. That's, so, uh, yeah. And then um, after that, I have a follow-up to Witch of Wickerson, um, which is like a bigger daunting story called The Rats of Ironwood. Um, great name. And yeah, so it's yeah. a nice, uh, it'll be a nice change uh, a little bit from Crimson Fall, but um, still kind of a little bit of the same themes a little bit. You know, it's all kind of in that fantasy just that's anthropomorphic all ages. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much the plan. Okay. That's a good plan. Um, so, <laughs> so real, real quick before we go, uh, since I am celebrating mm -hmm. a little horror comics uh, moment here, do you have any horror comic that you would like to recommend to the listeners? Any, any specific book, Okay, independent or big, you've mentioned Mignola's work um, or spawn. Even is there any book you'd like to solo out? That is a, uh, you think a staple. I love uh, Silver Coin oh, yeah. from Michael Walsh, um, Hamilton artist, incredible artist, uh, really good dude. Actually, didn't um, know just, that. I didn't know he's a, a, another Canadian. He is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's such a, and again, it's a, it's a horror anthology, which I love. I love that kind of stuff, kind of like a little bit of a creep show vibe. Mm -hmm. um, I love that he has like a common theme of a coin, like this this particular coin, and it kind of gets passed around in each story a little bit, and cursed or something or is a demon in the coin i don't know what it is but whoever kind of picks it up just doesn't have a good day and uh you know it's uh such a cool uh platform like a story idea i'm jealous that i didn't think of it <laughs> um and uh yeah it's just so fun he's got a lot of really top writers writing on it his he does the artwork for it it's fantastic um so i, th I think they have 
two or three volumes now I, maybe four i don't know it's a, yeah i've only read the first volume but i totally second your recommendation okay. i think I, th- I thought it was great and uh yeah the common yeah, motif so between horror, like, all the stories is great yeah yeah um anything like becky clunan does is also highly recommended she usually does things that have horror and macabre themed um she has a few independent books that she's done um by chance or by providence i believe it's called um, she did an independent book through Image, and it was an anthology, another inspiration for like doing Crimson Fall. And I believe she has a couple of uh, independent books that she's put out on her website. So check out okay. Becky Clunan. Yeah, thank she you for the recommendations, stuff. and uh, thank no you problem. for joining me here on the on the Creators on Comics podcast. I really appreciate you coming on and doing an episode. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you once again to Derek for joining me for this episode. I really enjoyed our conversation. If you want to check out Derek's work, including all the books we discussed, visit DerekLoffman.com, and that link will be down in the episode description for you. And if listeners want to hear more of this kind of episode, uh, feel free to let me know, and I can maybe consider doing spotlights more often. Special thanks to Matt Campbell for composing our music, and Patrick Hart for designing our logo. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creators on Comics podcast. <laughs>